Tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. It's been a while. I've missed you. Uh, Let's have a word of prayer and we'll start talking about the book of Romans. Father God, I ask as we look to your word tonight that your Holy Spirit would not only help us to learn the information and background and all that data kind of stuff about this book of Romans, but Lord, you would also speak to issues in our own hearts that your truth might resonate on the inside of us, Lord, and that the next time we pick up this book and read it, it would speak to us with new dimensions of goodness and grace. We pray for this help, Lord, to look to you for it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we begin in the book of Romans with that third section of the New Testament we talked about when we first began this series this year, and that is the, what we call the letters of the New Testament, the epistolos, they're called. It literally, the word epistolos literally means letter, so it's nothing terribly complicated, except it's a term that ha- is far more formal in the Greek language than it is in our English language. It, it re- really uh, addresses something that has kind of a special nature because in an era where the f- greatest technology that was available for communicating was the written word, handwritten either on vellum, which is basically hides or skins that were specially prepared for writing on, or more commonly papyrus, basically what, where we get our word paper today, but taking reeds from Egypt, they would pound them out, and it was a major industry, but it was a very expensive product. And so when you received a letter, it was rare. In fact, most people in their lifetime would never see one, much less ever touch one. But they were an official way of communicating. And so when these would be written by Paul or James or John or the other apostles, and they would be sent by couriers and delivered to a particular church, they would be something not only that would be read, but would have been archived. It would have been valued. It would have been brought out and read again and again and again. So that over time, those people who were part of that community that had the honor of possessing one of these scrolls would literally know it from heart. They'd heard it so many times. They would have listened with such passionate intensity that every single word would have been etched in their brain as if it had been chiseled by God's hand itself. And so when we talk about them, it's so easy for us to be kind of casual about it because paper is so common, so dispensable. It's not what we would call a valuable commodity. And the way things are going, we probably won't even use it much longer But to the ancients, it was the height of technology and the most important form of communication. It was a way that kings spoke to their subjects as well as other rulers, and it was not something that was common at all. Um, Basically, we talked a few weeks back about how the New Testament has these three major sections. We have the Gospels, which is the story of Jesus, if I can put it in kind of simple terms. And then we have, of course, the book of Acts we talked about last time, which is the story of the church. So where do the letters fit in? Where do the epistles fit in? Well, they're really the story of the church's theology. Now, why do I use that kind of phrasing, the story of uh, the theology? Well, part of it was because I wanted to match the story of Jesus' story of the church. Uh, But more honestly, you have to understand that the letters were written for very practical purposes, 
Sometimes people will read the Bible and the New Testament, and if they have trouble understanding it, they just assume it's written in some kind of uh, spiritual cipher that you can never really understand, like a mystery language. But you have to understand they were written in a language which was, we call the Koine Greek of the day, the, the common everyday language of the street. They weren't a high and exalted kind of language like we might think when we read, for example, the King James English, and we kind of assume that when Paul was reading Scripture or the Scripture read in church that they had all the these and the thous and so forth, but it wasn't like that at all. It probably sounded more like the living New Testament than it did the King James. It was meant to be understood by the common person on the street. It wasn't meant to be some kind of difficult language to crack. And it was written to speak to real-life, everyday issues, which is one of the reasons that keeps the New Testament, and particularly the letters, so very applicable up until the present moment. Because when you read them, they're talking about the everyday issues, not only that the Corinthians or the Romans struggled with, or the theological principles that they had trouble getting their minds around, but they were also the same things that you and I deal with. And when you begin to recognize that, you begin to read them as not something written for another generation, but something that was written for every generation and for every person for those important critical moments of their life. There are 21 letters in the New Testament, 13 written by Paul, and they're arranged really, I mean, it doesn't sound very dramatic, but they're really arranged by size for the most part. The first set is Paul's letters, starting with his largest down to his smallest, and the same way with the rest of what we call the general epistles, the ones written by John and Peter and Hebrews and so forth. And they pretty much are laid out in similar way, ending with 3 John, which is one of the shortest of all the letters of the New Testament. So there's nothing particularly thematic in the way that they're put together, except when we talk about the book of Romans, we have to understand that not only is it a large, long letter, but it is probably theologically foundational for the church. Because there is no other place where Paul more comprehensively speaks about the basis of our relationship with God and how we get to heaven. It's really the gospel of grace spelled out, not in complex terms, although it may seem a little challenging to you and I sometimes, but nonetheless, it's put in a way that was meant to be understood so that it could be grasped and lived out on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when we look at it, basically, we go through our vital statistics, as always, who was the author, without dispute. This is he's one of the few books of the Bible that nobody ever argues about who wrote it. Paul very clearly opens by saying that he's a, it's written by him, that he's a servant, a, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart, we might say sanctified or separated by God for a special work of spreading the gospel of God throughout the world. We know that it was written about 57 AD, and how do we know that? Well, because there's a lot of factors that go into it, but when we match it with Paul's third missionary journey, he was in the city of Corinth, and he's actually coming through the Greek uh, cities of Thessalonica and Philippi and Athens and so forth. And when he gets to Corinth, he's really heading back to Jerusalem. He writes in the letter of the Corinthians, and we'll see this when we get in 2 Corinthians, about gathering an offering from the Greeks' uh, churches to bring money to relieve the poverty that the church in Jerusalem was suffering because of persecution. 
And he writes this letter to the Romans telling them, as soon as I have gotten done with my business in Jerusalem, I want to visit you. In other words, this would have been an extension of his ministry. Now, some theologians think that Peter had already previously got there. We know that a church was existing in Rome long before Peter and Paul ever got there. Some suggest that the day of Pentecost, when we see all these travelers from throughout Europe hearing the gospel and believing, and some 3,000 getting saved, that it's quite possible that even then some of those individuals were from Rome and returned there and began to plant the church that the church really grew very spontaneously and organically. And yet one of the challenges that maybe many of the early believers didn't anticipate was that their chief opponents were going to be the Jews. And this comes out in this letter. And, and that's what we have to keep in mind, that the first persecutors of the early church were the Jews who saw it as a heresy that needed to be stomped out. You understand, of course, Paul's attitude uh, towards the church before his conversion, and that attitude was pretty pervasive. In fact, when we uh, uh, try to really kind of get down to when exactly it was written, it's an interesting quote. In Acts chapter 18, too, we read the following. It says, there was a conflict, or excuse me, Claudius, who was the emperor, emperor at the time, had commanded all the Jews to depart Rome. The Claudius the emperor ordered all the Jews to leave. And it's Suetonius, the Roman historian, who writes about 100 years later in, in his uh, history of the 12 Caesars, he says the following. He says, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, he expelled them from Rome. Most scholars believe that really what Suetonius, Christus, who he's referring to, was actually Christ. That literally there was a, such a conflict amongst the Rome, Roman Christians uh, or Jewish Christians in Rome and the, and the Orthodox Jews within Rome at that time that they had to actually expel all of them out of Rome in order to settle the peace. And uh, there's a lot of things that continue, are uh, connected with that. But as I said before, when we look at this book, what Paul really tries to do is lay out the, the three theological foundation for the gospel of grace. And there's three key points, I think, that we see in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 when he first presents the introduction of the book. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because, number one, it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So here's the thing, where's the power by which a man can be saved? And he says, it comes through the gospel that I present. And then he secondly says that it's a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. So it's a righteousness not by keeping the law of Moses or any other religious system, but it's by placing my faith in the person of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for me on the cross and through the resurrection. And then he says, thirdly, in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all who suppress the truth by their wickedness. 
the word suppress and the amplified it translates it to repress or to hinder. Uh, I like Peterson calls it those who shroud over, really hide the truth of God by their behavior. It, it, he says that God's wrath comes against anything that opposes this revelation of truth. And essentially, this encapsulates the message that Paul is going to deliver through the letter to the Romans. In fact, the book is really broken into five major sections, beginning with, first of all, that he tells us in the first three chapters that the problem facing the world is sin. It's sin that separates men from God, and it's sin that leads to behavior that alienates mankind from God. And he works through it very interestingly because he starts off talking about the sin of the Gentiles, the sin of the non-Jew. And if the Jewish reader was going through this, he would have been nodding his head in agreement and saying, well, now this guy's making sense. I can get behind what he's telling me because he's talking about the behaviors that God said separate men from God. And it's interesting because in verse 21 of chapter 1, he begins by saying, for although they knew God. In other words, everybody knows about God. There's an awareness of God in every man, woman, and child in the world. That's why when people say to me, I don't believe in God, I just like to retort by saying, you don't believe in what? God. Well, what do you mean by God? And as they define what they mean by God, I say, if there is no God, how do you come up with a definition of what doesn't exist? How can you define something that isn't? The very fact that you can say, I don't believe in an almighty ultimate being who rules over the universe tells me that there must be an almighty ultimate being who rules over the universe or you wouldn't be talking about him right now. Makes sense to me. Seems to just make them mad. But anyway, but he says they know God. I mean, there's this awareness. He talks about that every man comes in the world at some point becomes aware that there is this, this deity that rules over everything and controls everything. And it doesn't take great insight. We can simply look at the world around us and conclude rather quickly, we didn't make it. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it, when we look at, at, at the, somebody opens up a wristwatch that's been handmade and we look at all the parts and the pieces and the gears and we go, man, that's just amazing. How does somebody make something that delicate, so intricate, so small, so precise? How do they do something like that? And one of the things I know immediately as I look at that is I could never do that. And then you take something like the simplest molecule uh, and it's so many zillions of times more complicated than the most complicated piece of machinery ever made and to simply say it just kind of fell together. It would be like taking apart a, a delicate expensive watch and putting it in a bag and shaking it together and dishing it out on the table and expecting that it's going to suddenly come together and keep perfect time. And if I were to tell you that that's how you fix your watch when it doesn't work, you'd probably, you know, say you're either teasing me or you're, you are as crazy as you look. Because it, it, we just know that can't be. And yet, when God says for men to say that there's no God, or to fashion him in a form that fits into the folds of their wallets so they can pull him out of the laminates whenever they need something from him, it's just nuts. It's, it's, it's mindless. In other words, it's something you come to without because you've chosen not to really think about it at all. But because of that, he says, but what really becomes the danger is they, became ne they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks. 
This becomes incredibly important, I think, because it is the absence of thankfulness to God. To be able just to simply thank you, God, that I exist. You know, we get into our own pity parties, don't we, and saying, oh, life is so terrible, I just want to die because it's so hard. And, you know, if, if God were to actually offer you the opportunity or take you up on it, you'd panic because you don't really mean it. And it's really kind of an affront to God in the sense that I should be thankful that God even recognizes me, that He created me. We look in the mirror and we get angry with God because of how He created us. And He said, you should be thanking me that you're created at all, that you exist at all. That you're, you should be thankful that I allowed that spermatozoa to find that egg. And there came magic and you just began to happen inside your mother's belly. You should be thanking me for the very life that you possess because it's my gift. And He says, but men weren't thankful. And because, in fact, he says their, their thinking became futile, which means basically they began to run in directions with their thought life that really led nowhere. And he says their foolish hearts became dark. They're just in rather enlightenment. The more they try to become enlightened, the more complexly dark and confusing their thinking was. And he says because that became such a a fixed position within the attitude of man, such a point of, of pride that he says God gave them over. And this is the phrase that he repeats three times in this first chapter. That, and it's really a giving over in a descending order of corruption. That he says he gave them over to sexual impurity for the grading of their bodies with one another. You know, I want to say this correctly so I'm not misunderstood. But, you know, in God's eyes, all sin is the same. I mean, sin is sin. A, a sin of an evil thought is, is as sinful as a sin of a, of a, of a murderous action. They, either way, there's sin that separates you from God. But when you talk about the impact of sin upon yourself and the people around you, Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 6, he said in verse 18, that every other sin that we do may be outside of the body, but the sin of sexual immorality is against our own selves. It's really an assault and a sin against our own self. It, it, de it devalues us in our own sense of ourselves. And so he says that, God simply said, if you don't want to follow me, then I'm just going to let you go your own direction. Because sometimes, as John Calvin once said, that sin is its own reward. In other words, what he meant is that when we sin, it will lead us to a consequence that will make us wish that we hadn't. And he says, but the real tipping point is when sexual immorality no longer is immoral. And that's the beginning of a, being, a giving over. That's a point where God, he says in a sense, will kind of steps back and says, okay, I'm not going to keep on harping on you. You just need to figure it out for yourself. And then he says as they continue in that, it goes to the next thing he says he gave them over to, where he said he gave them over to shameful lusts. And what he describes there is clearly homosexuality. That homosexuality is the next step away from God. That first he gives them over to sexual immorality. And the problem is that sexual immorality becomes addictive. It, it's like any kind of addiction. You, you, you have to always have more in order to get the same thrill. You can't just 
stay where you're at, you always have to increase. That's why so many people overdose on things like heroin because they stop shooting it, their body begins to heal, then they go back and they inject it at the same level they were when they were doing it all the time and their body can't help it and they overwhelm their body because the abuse of anything requires a raising of the dosage in order to get the same thrill. And so people move from sexual immorality into homosexuality, which leads in, the, in, in, the, in, in Leviticus 18 where he talks about going from homosexuality to, to incest to, to uh, bestiality. And he just goes through this list of, of greater and lower levels of degradation so that when we look at our culture and we see what's happening in, in our world today, uh, we see that people seem to be finding new ways to go deeper into sexual perversions and the reason is because they're feeding an addiction that becomes acceptable and then finally he says that he gives them over to a depraved mind uh, we might translate a reprobate mind it, it refers to a this kind of uh, somebody called it a vicious circle of moral depravity um, a total separation from God into an ever-widening vortex. You know what a vortex is? It's like that whirlpool. It's what happens when you flush the toilet. And he says, essentially, you just get caught into this suction that pulls you deeper and deeper, and the man or woman no longer becomes in control of them own self. And the, the way that the NIV translates this is pretty powerful. It says that they become senseless, faithless, heartless and ruthless. There's a ruthlessness, there's a viciousness that begins to, to express itself within a culture. So that it's not surprising when this pattern that he's describing is, is spoken of in Genesis chapter 6 where God destroys the earth through a flood. He's talking about this process where they go from levels and deeper and deeper levels of immorality until he simply says the earth was filled with violence. Because ultimately that ruthlessness and that violence becomes the only way in which maddened souls can express themselves. And it's the craziest thing because if you've ever studied the psychology of, of serial killers, it, it, one of the things that staggers your mind is that they have to do it in order to feel alive. That only as they take the life of another can they begin to feel themselves as being alive. And that's kind of what he's describing here, that there becomes this, this carnivorous nature of a culture. Well, as I said, the Jewish reader would have been going, exactly, exactly. So Paul turns to them. You who consider essentially yourself morally superior, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. He doesn't explain that. He doesn't go into detail. But I think that uh, it's interesting. Any culture that you're a part of, you, are, you gain the capacity to imagine the iniquity that's around you. That's why we call it temptation. That's why you, you 
have to certain place certain disciplines and parameters around your life because you know that if you allow these things in, they will take hold of you. Uh, I never forget many years ago uh, reading an article about an organization was trying to uh, put a, stop the spread of pornography within America, and one of the things they did was they had a seminar in which they tried they updated their members on what was happening in the world of pornography, and they showed clips from pornographic movies. And I remember in the article, I just think, yeah, thank you. I'm glad somebody else thought that was really pretty stupid. But as I'm reading the article, they go on and explain that they decided to no longer do that because it said it gave rise to certain period desires that their members didn't want to admit they possessed. I thought, in other words, you can't look at it and ignore it. It can get inside of you. And, and that's the whole point. He's saying, you know, you're living in this, this godless culture. And because the water that you're sitting in isn't boiling at the same temperature that the rest of the culture, you assume that somehow you're superior. But you are really part of the problem. You're, you're sinking with it. It's pulling you in with it. So that you may be superior morally than the culture that you're in. But in terms of what is acceptable in God's eyes... And that's the thing is it comes a relative morality. And he's not talking about being better or being good or anything. He's talking about that you think that you're acceptable to God because you're not as bad as those people are. We become that Pharisee who says, Lord, I thank you I'm not like this man as he points to the tax collector. I thank you that I'm not like him. And, and you know, Jesus' response was, which one do you think got mercy from God? The man who humbly said, forgive me, Father, for I'm a sinner. And he said, this is the problem. And he goes on to explain it further on. Because he said, he says, but it's important to realize that a man is not a Jew simply because he's been circumcised. He's not one outwardly. But it's that circumcision of the heart that God has separated your heart from the things that once controlled you. And then finally, he wraps it up in chapter 3 by saying, it's for these reasons, Jew and Gentile alike, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is separated from God. There is no human formula. There's no actions that we can engage in that can change that dynamic. So he moves from the, the dynamic of sin to begin talking about where is salvation found. And this is where he finds that we find that the problem in chapter 4, verse 20, he makes this statement. He says, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, on my car, they, I love these computers, um, except this aspect. I don't like this function. But my wife does it. She programmed it for me. It has an alarm that goes off every time I exceed 80 miles an hour. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not a guy who pays a lot of attention to the speedometer. Um, but just, I just I always explain to my wife, it's the flow of traffic, you know, as long as I'm flowing with the traffic and I'm just flowing a little faster than the rest of the traffic. I mean, I think that's okay. But I'll be going along and feeling really good all of myself, and all of a sudden this alarm goes off. It makes all this, this very irritating noise. And it's, it's kind of like that what Paul is saying, that, you know, people think, well, uh, the law is, is going to keep me from sinning. He said, no, all the law does is regularly point out to you that you are a sinner, that you do violate, that you do transgress. It makes obvious what you might otherwise begin to pretend that you don't. 
And that's the difficulty I find. This is why I tell people it's so important to have a personal daily devotional life because reading your Bible and just sitting quietly before the Lord and meditating on God and, and speaking to Him and letting Him speak into your life is something that creates an awareness of those areas in your life where there's slippage, where your foot might become becoming a little heavy and you're beginning to become a little bit... Uh, risky in how you're living your life and that's essentially he said that you think that by having a set of rules it's going to fix you I remember years ago when when the whole promise keeper movement came out which I thought was fine but uh, they had the seven promises of the promise keeper and and I told a guy I said you know I only have one problem with these seven promises I think they're good ideas but they had the Ten Commandments. I couldn't keep those. <laughs> now I'm going to have 17 commandments. It's just that many more things for me to be guilty of. And I was being a somewhat facetious. But the idea that you can, by your own willpower, fix your sinful nature is a deception. Because you can't. And that's why he said that God's solution is literally, in chapter 3, verse 20, he said, a righteousness from God apart from the law. Consider both those phrases. It's a righteousness. It's a, it's a right relationship with God. It comes from Him, and it's completely apart from any set of moral regulations or guideposts. It's something that He gives to you, not because of, but He bestows on you in spite of the fact that you are a sinner. And then He goes in chapter 4 to give the example of Abraham. He says, look at Abraham. And sometimes we overlook the bad things in Abraham's behavior. <laughs> we overlook the fact that he did some stuff that was wrong. I mean, we catch him lying a couple times, you know, telling, oh, no, she's not my wife, that's my sister. Well, you know, the truth is, she's not half my half-sister. But, he, you know, he does, and you sit there and I think, why Sarah didn't leave, I don't know. Maybe because she didn't own the camels, I don't know. But, you know, this, he does this stuff and you just go, this is the guy who's the friend of God? <laughs> And then if you stop for a moment and think about it, you realize, but am I better? <laughs> How many times have you fudged the truth? How many times have you not been completely straight up or completely? How many, you know, the reality is, if we look hard enough, it's not hard to find evidence. But he simply says, but that, he says, Abraham, before Moses, there is no Mount Sinai experience. There is no Ten Commandments. There's no law out there that he has to submit to. Before all of that, Abraham simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. It was credited to him. In other words, it was extended to him even though he had never, in fact, had done some things that might make him deserving of just the opposite. He goes on in the verse 13 of chapter 4, It was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. It's looking to God to be my righteousness, not trying to be my own righteousness. And that's why he says in chapter 5, he begins by saying, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, justified means to be declared innocent. We've been, we've been acquitted. How, how do we become acquitted of our sin? Through our faith in what God did through Jesus Christ. We, as a consequence, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says you have the peace with God. It doesn't necessarily mean that you feel the peace of God in your own heart. 
Because sometimes we don't believe what God has said He'd done. We don't believe that He's forgiven us. We don't believe that we're righteous. And so we don't have peace in our hearts. But He's saying, that's your problem. God says, I have no issues with you any longer. I have forgiven you. I have, you have peace with God. Before, we were the enemies of God. Not because God declared war on us, but because the way we lived our lives, we lived in opposition, in antagonism, in resistance. We were warring against God in our own hearts. And God declared peace. And any hostility, any judgment or wrath that we might be deserving was, came to an end in that very moment because His Son, Jesus, paid the price. And not only that we are justified, but then he goes on in chapter 6 to say that we have also, because we're saved, been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What sanctified means is that we've been separated from that life of sin and death and the wrath of God, and we have been put into a new special position with God. He says, you know, in chapter 6, he says, we died to sin. How, long, how can we live therein anymore. And he's not saying that you become sinless, what quite the opposite. He says, but you no longer, your residency, your spiritual mailing address is no longer sin city. Your mailing address is heaven. And he says, so you've been set free from sin. Doesn't mean you don't still go and visit, but the power it has is the power of habit. It may be the power of choice, but he has given you all the power that you need to be free from the controlling influence of sin. So that your life is no longer defined by sin, it's defined by Christ. That's why later on we'll see in Corinthians, Paul makes this interesting kind of point. He's saying that if you've truly experienced the saving grace of Jesus Christ, then the trajectory of your life has changed. But if you're still doing the same things after you get saved that you did before you're saved, and, and your life looks no different, there's a real danger that possibly maybe you aren't really saved. Maybe you just got religious. But Paul goes on, he says that we have become essentially the slaves of God. How, how am I God's slave? He bought me with a price. He purchased me out of, this, out of the slave market of sin and death. And he said, you now belong to me. I purchased you with my blood the moment you said, I believe. But then in chapter 7, Paul says, but I get it. My position doesn't always line up with my condition. Anybody understand that dynamic? My position in, in Christ doesn't always line up with the condition of my life. He, he says, I see, he says, in my inner being, that is in my new nature, I delight in the law of God. But in verse 23, he says, but I see another law, not law in the sense of uh, rules, but a, a principle, a dynamic. I see another dynamic at work in the members of my body that is in my old sinful nature that wages war against the, the law of my mind and making me a prisoner within my members. And so Paul, at the end of chapter 7, says, I, I find this dilemma. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he answers his own question by telling us God's solution. In verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on to say, Who no, we no longer live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. That that spirit of God is going to prevail and is going to labor within me and prevail within me to lead me out of that life and to change me 
Not because I am saved by being changed, but if I'm saved, I will change. It's that simple. And even beyond that, as he goes on to the last part of chapter, he says, not only is God, uh, is there no condemnation, but there is a predestination. In verse 29, he says, for those God foreknew, that God knew before he even said, let there be light, that there would be a day which you would come to believe in him as your Savior. Because he knew that, he predestined you to what? He predestined you to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That the moment I asked Jesus Christ in my heart, a plan from before eternity kicked into play in my life. Unbeknownst to me, but there, this movement of, of heaven began to move in my life to begin to conform my life so that it might look more and more like the life of Jesus being lived out on the earth. And that's why he says those whom he had began this process, those who he predestined, and I, I you know, don't have time to go into saying, no, it doesn't mean that some people are predestined to heaven or some people are predestined to hell. I think that's an abominable doctrine. But he says, those whom he did predestine, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? He said simply, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's why he goes on to say, we're more than victors. We're more than conquerors. Because God has begun a work. The moment you said, Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. The Holy Spirit of God began a process in your life to transform your life and to conform it more and more, not to the patterns of this world, but to the patterns of the will of God, the heart of God. And that work is going on when you recognize it and when you don't recognize it. That there is not an event, a circumstance, a moment of your life that isn't interconnected with this working of God to bring you to this place where he wants you to be. Now, just to give you some reality here, uh, you'll never get completely fixed until you're in heaven. (laughs) Heaven is where you're fixed. (laughs) Everything is broken, damaged, misaligned, cockeyed, and weird about you. We'll be gone when you're in heaven. You know, I guarantee you this. When we're in heaven, you're going to like you and everybody else is going to like you too. I can't guarantee that on this side of heaven, but I know that heaven, that's going to be the case. And what he's telling us is that perception isn't reality. Reality is reality. And God says, this is reality. So beside you look at it and say, well, as far as I can see, this is the way it is. That doesn't mean anything. Because that's one of the reasons why detectives and judges and courts and lawyers long ago realized eyewitnesses can't be counted on. Because they can see things in their mind that never happened. You know, it's just, it, it, it's, perception is not reality. What is reality? God's truth is reality. So you look at yourself and say, I don't feel like I'm holy. God says, but you are. Well, I don't feel like I'm of any use to God. You are. I mean, you go through the list of all the things that you depreciate yourself over, and God says, just because you see that when you look in the mirror doesn't mean that that's true. That's your perception, but your perception isn't reality. Reality is what I say. And when you mess up and you realize I've sinned, and you're beating yourself with, with a, a whip of nine cords because you're such a bad person, and God says, I forgive you. Well, I don't feel forgiven. So what? (laughs) That's not reality. That may be your perception. Maybe that's the way you were raised. You have a, you've, 
felt guilty from the moment you know you you came out of the womb. I, I get all of that dynamic. But healing only comes when we begin to accept and believe and embrace what God says is truth. Instead of saying that somehow my perceptions are more true than God's truth. And that, when we begin to grasp that, healing and freedom begins to take place in our life in ways that we can't imagine. Because we hear these injunctions to, have, to be joyful, and we say, okay, I'll be joyful. <laughs> I hate my life. <laughs> and, you know, and you don't feel joyful. And if anybody tries to talk to you, you're going to say, well, you don't understand what's going on in my life, and this is happening, and that's happening. If you had my problems. And we get mad at people if they simply say, yeah, but Jesus said you're forgiven. Jesus says he has a plan for your life. Jesus said all this is going to work out for the good. Jesus said he's going to glorify himself in your life, that you're going to be victorious, that you're going to overcome. He, Jesus said all these things. Well, I'll, I'll believe it when I say it. Well, you may not see it until you're dead, and then you will believe it. I guarantee that. <laughs> but between now and then, you're going to make yourself miserable for no purpose. That's what I think about that. But then Paul turns to the fourth part and he talks about the Jews again. And he's really talking about the sovereign nature of salvation. That he wants to make them very clear, especially in chapter, verse, chapters 9 and 10, he wants to make it clear that I save you, you don't save yourself. And this is where this whole section gets really, I feel like, misapplied. But he tells us why the Jews were outside of, of God's blessing. He says in verse 3 of chapter 10, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, which is Jesus, they sought to establish their own, and they did not submit to God's righteousness. You see, of all the sins that, that God is grieved by, this is the one that grieves him the most. That instead of accepting the righteousness that he gave, he gave the most valuable thing he had. God himself became man and was crucified on the cross and took the sins of the world upon himself that you might experience forgiveness and know the righteousness of God. He says, I did all of that for you. And you say, no, I think I'll, I'll do it myself. I'll fix myself. I'll save myself. That is one of the greatest insults. When I realized that when I sat around saying, well, I just don't know if God has forgiven me, that I was blaspheming God every time I did that. Because God says to me, hey, confess your sins, I forgive you your sins. And every time I say, well, I don't know, I, maybe, maybe there's something I can do to, to, to prove to me and to God. I mean, I, I would fast. I would, I'd, do, I'd take on all these... Ch -ch challenges, I would challenge myself to do all these things, to, to prove to God that I deserve to be forgiven. And I felt worse after I got done doing that stuff. You fast for seven days, your breath smells terrible. And, and you feel terrible. And you wonder, why don't I feel so, I feel lightheaded and a little dizzy, but I don't feel closer to God. And the answer says, because you're trying to be righteous through your own works, and you're not accepting my righteousness. That's why he says, but the one day the Jews will get it. In chapter 11, in verse, he says in verses 5 through 29, I summarize a bit, but he says, 
I do not want you to be ignorant. He's speaking to the Gentile believers now. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. That Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full numbers of the Gentiles has come in. And so he says, all Israel will be saved. Um, Don't have time to go into how that will work. But nonetheless, he's saying, don't just discard the Jews. In verse 28, he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. And you see what Paul was dealing with? As they're being persecuted by the Jews, they're beginning to become bitter and resentful and hateful towards the Jews because they're making them suffer. And he says, yeah, they're your enemies. I'm not saying they're not your enemies. But he goes on, he says, but as far as election, that's in God's plan of salvation, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, on account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Others, he says, their love for God's gift and his calls are irrevocable. Some people ask me, do I believe that a Christian can lose their salvation? I don't. I think if you've really been saved, I don't think you can lose it because of that passage alone. He says, it's irrevocable. It's a gift, was it? You didn't earn it. It was given to you, and I think it's irrevocable. Doesn't mean you can fail to appreciate it, but nonetheless... But if that becomes the reality, then he goes on finally in chapters 12 through 15 to say that as we're being sanctified, we're going to find God directing us to serve, to submit ourselves to to Him and to others. And it's kind of that consecration of my life in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's as if he's saying, you know, that once you've settled the eternal issues of your life and you realize that God has a plan that he's working out in your life, you no longer have to be afraid of what happens with your life. You can entrust your life to me and you can begin to say, here it is, God, take it. I don't even understand a lot of the stuff that that goes on in my life, but Lord, here, take it. And, and, and use it in whatever way that you want. Part of that, he says, you know, in chapter 13, he said, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. It's interesting. <laughs> He's serving a, a, an autocratic emperor with a bunch of little puppet minion characters. I just saw that movie. Great. <laughs> My first experience of minions. <laughs> he did, he's, you know, the emperor with all of his, his was it gruel or whatever his name is, and his minions. I mean, and, and Paul says, submit to them. He doesn't say sin if they want you to sin, but he says, that's not our cause. Our cause isn't to fi- fix the government or the politics of the world. Our cause is to preach the gospel that men might be saved. And it's a funny thing, when men get saved and begin to follow Jesus, the politics seem to, to clean themselves up and the corruption seems to go away. But particularly in verse 8, he says, by that mutual love. I love the way he phrases it, let no debt remain outstanding. I mean, not paying your debts when you can is kind of a, a loveless act. You know, to, but he says, you know, I mean, there's times sometimes, I mean, we all get in that place where we don't have it. But he says, don't leave a debt unpaid if you can pay it, except the continuing debt to love one another. There's never an excuse for me not loving someone else. And I wish I could say, therefore, I'm always faithful to do that. No, I, I'm, I'm always getting a credit check from God all the time on the love issue, right? 
But he says, don't give yourself permission to say it's okay not to love this person. It's a dangerous place to get. Because he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then finally in chapter 14, he says, be considerate to one another. Accept those who are weak in the faith without passing judgment on disputable manners. Uh, I love the way Peterson puts it in the message. He He says, welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see the things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with, even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Treat them gently. Everybody has their own story. Everyone has come their own path and, and, and the journey has shaped and, and molded and, and, and formed them in the way they are, the person they are. And they have things that are beautifully formed in there and they have some things that are probably horribly deformed inside of them. That's true of us all. And most of us, we spend a great deal of our time and energy trying to keep the deformed parts of ourselves cloaked <laughs> and hidden away. We, we hope they don't see the light of day. And we try to profile those, those more positive, attractive aspects of our life. But what happens when you begin to become relationally involved with other people is, I mean, you just start seeing those things that somebody might like to keep undisclosed it's kind of I guess I'm really talking code in many ways about being married you know you you marry you you have this I always in my book I talk about the three stages you go from illusion to disillusionment to enrichment but you got to get through the disillusionment phase you know they call it infatuation those first two years that, that you're married there's actually a chemical dynamic going on inside of you that makes you see that person in a better light than they actually are And then the rose-colored glasses came on and you begin to discover that there's whole aspects. It's like the dark side of the moon with hills and valleys that have never been charted before. And you're the first one to discover these things. And you try to relate them to other people and they go, oh, no, they're not that way. And you just go, yeah, they're crazy as a loon. (laughs) You see when the full moon comes up, it's really wild. And, And we feel justified to not love at that point. And along the shore of he's saying, you know, don't, don't go there. Don't let that happen. Because there's that part of you too. We're all like that. And that's really the beauty of the gospel of grace is that beside, because God sees all of that. And it never stopped him for a moment from loving you. I love Max Licato's little witticism, you know, that God loves you the way, just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. <laughs> that is what love is like. It loves what it finds, but it loves it enough to say, but I'll labor over you until it changes. And that's when you begin to realize that the grace of God goes from something that has captured me that now becomes something that expresses itself through me in, my, in the relational dynamics with other people. Father, I pray that you would help us to 
hear this, the message of this wondrous book. I, my goal every time I do this, Lord, is that the next time, maybe this week, my f- brothers and sisters, my friends here will just pick up this book of Romans and they'll read it and maybe read it with a fresh set of eyes that they'll capture things that they never really grasped before and understand why saints and scholars for, for millennia have marveled at the majesty and the brilliance Really, the expression of the divine genius that is in this book and begin to allow its truths to penetrate us and to alter our perceptions so that we'll begin to realize, see reality as it really is through your eyes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.